Hello and welcome to part 11 of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, the wind is rising and we must live in our review of Miyazaki's first farewell film, the 2013 biopic, The Wind Rises. But first, how are you guys? I'm doing all right, Scott. What is going on? We just had Thanksgiving and Christmas time is here. Um, I don't know about you, but even though it is still technically November, I'm in the camp of it's okay to start playing Christmas music now. Um, I don't want to. I'm sure we could spend a whole podcast episode talking about whether it is or isn't if you disagree, but I'm starting to feel festive and feeling excited. About I really it. hope that we would not spend actually an hour talking about that. That that would be yeah. brutal. Thanksgiving <laughs> has passed now, so I'm in firm agreement with you at this point, Jay. I don't have strong feelings about Christmas music in general, but I do love a good Christmas tree. So, Yeah, well, Scott and I are two of the only people in the world who keep our Christmas trees up year-round. That's true. Um, however, My parents um nice we are two of the four people in the world <laughs> yeah well i don't actually plug in my tree though until it is actually the fe- the festive season so i have plugged it in i'm looking at it right now as we speak and uh it's it's nice it's definitely it's definitely nice to have the christmas tree on it's finally starting to get cold around here so it is feeling like that time of year finally and i'm not mad about it scott how are you i'm good i I've been looking forward to the end of this countdown just to get into everything that comes with the end of Miyazaki's filmography. Uh, although I guess you could say that about just almost every movie we've talked about is that I was looking forward to getting to this point in the countdown series. I'm looking forward to getting to the next point in the countdown. I'm just looking forward to so much of it. But, it sounds like you want to do the retro right now. Look, I'm <laughs> looking forward to doing the retro as well. And I'm looking forward to talking about The Boy and the Heron. And I'll be looking forward to revisiting all these movies again in the near future probably. As uh, as I am want to do, but I'm good. I enjoyed Thanksgiving. It was a refreshing time off. I think I talked about it on our episode of Some Like It Scott that just released this past week as well. Had a good time, and came back here. And I flew back Saturday night, and I treated myself Sunday morning to The Wind Rises. And look, I've been I've been doing pretty well since then. I'll say that much. Yeah, of course. For those who might not be as intimately familiar with Miyazaki's filmography, of course, this is the last movie that we'll be reviewing as part of the countdown. Um, we will have the retrospective episode, which uh, Jay and Scott mentioned there. And then, of course, The Boy and the Heron will be reviewing over on Some Like It Scott. So, of course, you'll want to stay tuned to the podcast feed for all of that. Um, but before we get to that, we do, of course, have uh, our final film of the countdown. And as mentioned, that is 2013's The Wind Rises. The Wind Rises tells the true story of Jiro Hirokoshi, who, as the film opens, is a young boy that dreams of being a pilot, but is prevented from doing so by his chronic nearsightedness. Faced with this conundrum, Jiro, voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, speaks in a dream to his idol, the Italian aircraft designer Giovanni Caproni, who shares with Jiro that he has, in fact, never flown a plane himself and that building planes is far superior anyway. Motivated by this interaction, Jiro enrolls in school to study aeronautical engineering, and after graduation, takes a job designing fighter pilots for Mitsubishi. Torn about designing planes that are used for a destructive purpose, Jiro nevertheless pours his heart and soul into his work, but his first designs fail, and after being sent to work in Germany with the fledgling Weimar Republic, he becomes further disillusioned with the rise of fascism he witnesses around him. On vacation at a Japanese resort, however, Jiro reconnects with Naoko Satomi, voiced by Emily Blunt, a girl he once had a chance encounter with years ago. Although she is stricken with tuberculosis, Jiro falls in love with Naoko, and this newfound passion also awakens Jiro's creativity, and he begins working fiercely on a new aircraft, even while Naoko grows sicker alongside him. Jay, we'll start with you. Is Miyazaki's bittersweet biopic a touching ode to the dreamer and all of us, or does his foray into a new genre of sorts crash and burn like Jiro's first fighter planes? There we go again with the extreme, Scott. Um, why did no one warn me when I was making all these The Wind Rises jokes in my Bane voice that Joseph Gordon-Levitt was the lead of this? Do you realize how much funnier that makes referencing The Dark Knight Rises in relation to this movie? At the same time, 
How did no one warn me that this movie was going to be this good? I did warn you. I warned you from the beginning that you should you... not sleep on movies at the end of the day. I mean, our letterbox I, reviews I, I were, were like... right there. <laughs> well, okay. I try not to look no, at your letterbox I mean, but, but like I told you. You, you did, when you, when you watch Kiki, you're, you're, you're just like, what's going on here? Like, how can the movies get better than this? I'm like, my God, don't worry. There's more. <laughs> I mean... I don't know where I thought you were talking about. Like I, you know, I mean, presumably back... you thought I was exclusively referring to Spirited Away, but I wasn't exclusively. Perhaps I mean, like Spirited maybe Away. Howl's Moving Castle too. Like I feel like that's a you know one that I've heard a lot about. I don't feel like I've heard people talk about this, and for the life of me, I don't get why. Um, oh my God, Scott's like, I I just I was not expecting to have my heartstrings tugged at the way that they were. We can spend an hour easily talking about this and more. Like, what a wonderful, like, what a wonderfully told story, right? About cursed dreams. It just, I mean, like, it's it's crazy because it's dancing around or being you know being woven through. Like, if you consider the historical context of it, you know, with, with the ignoring the fact that we don't actually ever see like swastikas on the Nazis, right? Like, this is a story about World War II and like, you know, someone designing planes that you know were eventually used to like harm the u.s right like or you know at least for a country that like we were at war with at some point you know viewing it through that lens is like you know probably makes it a little bit more questionable but if you can just like take a step step back from that and like not view this as like a you know in it and i'm sure this comparison's been made but i was thinking about this while i was watching in the same way that like oppenheimer is a story about the man the movie you know and not like you know a telling of like world war ii like this felt like another you know okay we're gonna tell the story of like one person you know filled with ambition perhaps a very different kind of ambition um and i'd actually argue not a very different kind of ambition to be honest i think i mean i i don't we, we don't have to like you know dissect the previous movie uh so much but i think you know oppenheimer i think was maybe driven a little bit more so by duty then like i want to do something beautiful like i think i mean that i think that's kind of where i even if it, even if it wasn't duty like i'm you know again let's not spend a ton of time talking about that i don't think at least through the way the, you know, the movie shows it's like oppenheimer's not driven by i just want to do something like i want to make beautiful planes that is i think the extent of what drives jiro right like he's you know he's almost like turning a blind eye to the rest of it like not you know, until let's say the very end, like where he's not even really spending that much time thinking about the atrocities that could be committed by the work that he and some of his like, you know, fellow engineers are doing unless and or until he's actually presented with that um, in front of him again, until the very end, um, so, you know, something similar that he's doing with Nahoko. Um, I hope I got that right. Uh you know, where he's, again, like, not actively or outwardly, like, talking about her condition and what's going on with her until, like, his sister is the one who, like, puts it in front of him, right? And it feels like Jiro just has this, like, you know, I, I, I hesitate to call it naive, but it almost is just, like, it, it's singularly focused, right? Like, the things that I think are beautiful, like, I am going to pursue and try to keep, you know, moving forward with and alive. And, like, it's, you know, it, it, I mean, like, I think it was just a really well told story. Um, Scott, I mean, you seem like, I mean, I, I'm curious now, like what you think, you know, what, what is this story about for him? I mean, this story is ab absolutely and 100% in my mind about this idea that the creative people in the world read, you know, Jiro Horikoshi and Hayao Miyazaki, all they want to do is make the th like be creative make the things that inspire them to be creative and put that creativity and that love and that art into the world and the reality is is that no matter what you do the act of creation means that the thing that you've created will be used and taken away from you and used in a way that you didn't necessarily approve of or have authority over and you talked about it as this sort of curse that sits on Horikoshi, almost this idea of this sort of cursed beauty. And I think that the way that I think about the movie is very similar to that. I think the film is about 
this idea that this person just wants to invent invent the and build and create the best plane he can do because that is what inspires him every day to wake up and live his life he, and that's what inspires him to live you know the wind rises therefore you know we we must try to live and that is that is what he lives for but ultimately the film is sort of asking the question although i'm not sure answering it or maybe answering it in a direction that maybe you wouldn't necessarily expect that um what happens once you do that is something that's out of your control obviously i think the film's position is that that's bad and frustrating but i don't think the film's position is that the planes shouldn't have been made i think no, miyazaki, miyazaki is absolutely of the opinion even as someone who I think I don't know if we've talked about it too much on the podcast before, but he's like pretty outspoken, like an outspoken pacifist that the planes that Horikoshi built, the A6M, I think is what it's called or something like that. The I mean, the planes that dropped a bunch of bombs, I'm pretty sure on uh, Pearl Harbor, if I'm not mistaken, maybe I'm mixing up the timelines there. But those those planes are beautiful and Japan should be proud of the engineering that the that those planes required and that's be and we talk about this a lot in other sep other sort of um context but i think of it kind of similarly of separating like the art from the artist so to speak right it's the idea of like separating the creation from the things that it was used for and i think that this sort of idea sort of bedevils the nature of creation and invention and progress and i think although not I think they are the movies are framed quite differently to your point. I think Oppenheimer is ultimately a film about a man who really wanted to push the boundaries of what is known in, in physics in um, in nuclear physics and invent and create and not necessarily use the things that he was creating. That is the point for debate, whether he not, he thought they should be used or shouldn't be used. I think that's maybe where your, you know, reasonable minds can differ around the, uh, internalized dialogue that might have been happening happening inside J. Robert Oppenheimer. But I think ultimately the notion that his creation was ripped from him and used in a way that ultimately it seemed he didn't necessarily approve of, or it certainly didn't necessarily approve of the extent to which it was used. Um, I, I think there's a similarity, a deep similarity in sort of the, the essence of these movies. And yeah, I mean, this film is unbelievable. I, I saw this film for the first time in since college last year when I saw it in a theater and was like, I mean, I was absolutely like devastated by the film, just like unbelievably um, moved by it, even though it wasn't my first time seeing it. And as with many films that I feel like I've said this over and over on almost every episode of the podcast, revisiting this film as I've grown older and more mature and, and maybe have more developed thoughts on, on maturity and what it means to sort of not grow old, but grow older. And I think that this is another film that really, really meaningfully um, has moved me and impacted the way I think about certain things. And as I rewatched it this past weekend in, you know, so, you know, Sunday morning, like I was like, I had a nice pot of tea and I was watching the wind rises. I'm like 30 minutes into the movie and I'm like, God damn, like this, this movie is just like, I can just sort of feel it in my, in my stomach, this film. It's just, it's just sort of unbelievable in that way. And I think you talked about it on Spirited Away maybe being like this. Maybe maybe Spirited Away is like one of the best animated movies ever made. I don't know. It's not maybe it's not my favorite animated movie. Maybe it's not my favorite movie ever made. But it's one of those things where I, this one I'm like I'm pretty sure this isn't the greatest animated movie ever made. But damn, it might be my favorite movie, um, animated movie at the very least. And yeah, quite possibly this is like the third or fourth time I've seen this movie now, and very much in the conversation of one of the one of my favorite films of all time. I mean, this movie's unbelievable. I think the voice performances, although. Again, I've gone back and forth over and over around voice performances and talking about those things, but I think they're really solid. I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt does a really good job as Horikoshi. Um, look, you talk about uh, similarities to Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt playing the wife of a World War II scientist. Uh, there you go. She's here again playing Naoko. And I think people like John Krasinski, Martin Short gives an incredible performance, in my opinion. I think he's amazing as Kurokawa. And Werner Herzog as Hans Kastorp is like just hilarious casting. I don't know if... I don't know if that resonates with you, Jay. I don't know if you're super familiar with Werner Herzog, but enough so. Yeah, hilarious so. stuff. And then I always have a soft spot for Mandy Patinkin, who plays uh, sort of Mitsub like Kurokawa's boss Hattori at the uh, at the Mitsubishi plant. And yeah, this whole this whole cast. I mean, when you, when you factor in Stanley Tucci as well, who plays 
uh, Caproni, who's the Italian plane uh, designer, main, um, sort of architect that Giro looks up to and has, you know, has the shared dream with, I think he does a wonderful job. And so the two or three scenes that he's in the film and every time uh, that he appears in these dreams and talks about how the wind is rising, you know, I just sort of feel my stomach sort of churn and I feel my just everything in my body sort of just like starting to levitate a little bit when I see that because there's just something so uh, that just sort of strikes at the, my core and my essence so deeply that it's hard to it's hard to not just sort of fully turn myself over to what's happening in the film. I think the the narrative that you're talking about, the way that the the story is crafted and the, and the narrative arcs, I think is beautiful you, for a really long period of time. You think the film is about is really about this only this one thing. And I think it ultimately becomes uh, a much not necessarily broader, but it, com it comes about more things than you expect, I think. And the fact that it ties those things together so effectively in, in Jiro and paints this picture of Jiro as not an, you know, microcosm of, of creators, but this embodiment of, I think, someone who Miyazaki really sees in himself is something that really strikes me really strongly as someone who deeply appreciates so many of the films and so much of the fan and, you know, the fantastical elements of the creativity that that Miyazaki has has engineered over 30, 40 years. And then to have him, you know, at the time, at least feel like he he's making his swan song and losing almost all fantastical elements to his film and making a biopic. There's these fantastical elements, such as like this shared dream notion that is a bit fantastical, of course, but otherwise it seems like almost this complete departure from anything that he's done in, you know, the last, you know, basically since the castle of Cagliostro, it, it just feels remarkable that he's able to, you know, appear and disappear um, in different genres and different subgenres, do it so seamlessly and leave such an indelible mark on me as a viewer, almost in almost every film that I watch of his and the wind rises almost sort of stands somehow head and shoulders above all the rest for me as the one that does it. And maybe, it, maybe it is the grounded nature of the film that elevates it even further, the complete removal of these sort of fantasy monsters that I think have animated me as, as being so excited about some of his movies. But in the end, when you know, sort of comes down to what really makes you tick as a creator, it's stories like these and arcs like these, like Jiro goes through that, you can explore yourself most deeply. I, I just found it really moving and it's such a, such a special film. There's a line. Yeah. Oh, just Go quickly, ahead. because you know, you, you were talking about artists, you know, while we're here, we just, we want to create, we have to create. There's one line in the movie that I, I don't think I'm misquoting when I say artists and engineers are only productive for 10 years. And yeah. I'm saying they're like, which were your 10 years, Miyazaki? Yeah. Like, I think, yeah. I think it's safe to say he's done more than 10 years of, you know, pretty amazing creativity i imagine he'd say his 10 years were the ones where he was pumping out like a movie every year <laughs> in the 80s but 80s, i mean uh, certainly this is this was creative yeah i mean as soon as you hear like those first notes of joe saishi's score which for me might be his best work um you just know like you're in for a special experience and that's what this movie is it's it is so different from the rest of his work, but as we've talked about before in movies where he's done a little bit of a pivot, he just, he nails it. It's seamless. And even though he is switching genres a little bit, you know, the things that are important to him, the ideas that are important to him are still very much present in this movie. Um, and it feels like such a culmination in a way of all of, of many of the recurring themes that we have talked about over the course of this series, whether it's, you know, the, pacifism aversion to violence which goes you know all the way back to nausicaa for example um whether it's um the relationship with the environment is not quite as pronounced in this movie but there is st still sort of a spiritual quality about it at times um and then uh, of course with just the idea of dreaming of creating of you know that being sort of your your lifeblood that that is you know, been present in all of these films 
to a certain extent as well. And as well, the, the importance of, of kindness, right. And, and love, and that being sort of a pure and cleansing force in this, you know, world that we live in where there's a lot of darkness and a lot of, you know, evil, if you will, going on. And I mean, we've talked a lot, a lot already about the, the war aspect of this film, but it's also a love story, right? And that part doesn't really happen until, you know, we get into the second half of the movie. But it's very, you know, important to the story the movie is trying to tell because Jiro feels, you know, a little bit unfulfilled. He feels a little bit like a failure, right? Not just because um, he is struggling with this whole, you know, notion of creating planes for the war, but because his plane designs you know, he, he hasn't even been able to create create a successful plane at this point. Um, but when he meets Naoko, right, something changes. And, um, and you know, he's able to sort of find that third gear and, uh, and you know, create the plane that we see at the end of the movie that, that does fly and that the pilot says, you know, is a, a beautiful plane. All the while finding... Tri- Finding the discovering the difficulty and finding that balance between creating, you know, this plane and trying to love his wife, right, who is very sick, is very ill. Um, and he's, you know, absent for a lot of their very short marriage because she passes away, of course. But um, this obviously, again, is something else that is very personal to Miyazaki. Not he doesn't have a sick wife, but you know, it's very well documented that um, his he, he has been married to the same woman for a long time and that he was very absent, particularly when his children were younger, because he was, you know, working and he has a very complicated relationship with his son, of course, who um, also is a director now. But um, that's obviously another, uh, just yet another aspect of this movie that probably feels personal to Miyazaki is the idea of that, you know work life balance if you will specifically in the context of balancing that romantic relationship um and so i mean there's so much to talk about here you know that's going on in this story and as it relates to miyazaki himself and i just can't get over the fact that i know the boy and the heron is going to be great like i do uh all of his films are are at least good but this just feels like the perfect farewell it really does like I'm not saying you shouldn't make the boy in the heron, but you know, save this one for the end, right? Uh, you know, the, it it would have been such a perfect sign off. Something about that final scene of, you know, Naoko kind of like giving a little bit of voiceover, but Caproni and um, and Jiro just sort of walking off into the sunset, if you will. Um, you know, kind of just content with the idea that Scott has brought up, which is that you know. Their creations may have been used for nefarious purposes, but they can they can and should take pride in the the creation of it. And, you know, they should take fulfillment from that because the world is going to do what the world is going to do. But at the end of the day, you made something beautiful and there are people who are going to appreciate that. And obviously, we certainly feel that way about Miyazaki's films. Um, so it's such a beautiful culmination, as we've said, of, of everything in Miyazaki's career and as as great as, you know, The Boy and the Heron and whatever is next, because we don't even know that that's going to be his last film now, uh, is to come. It just, there, there's something, of, I, I'm not sure that, you know, I will ever get past the idea of this movie being sort of the the perfect farewell and the perfect sort of bow on everything that Miyazaki represents as a director. Yeah, I <clears throat> I think one of the fascinating things about the arc of his career is that not only does he have all these like sort of fantastical, you know, tr- I'm not going to say traditional, but anime, you know, fantasy projects that he's worked on over decades. But at the end of his career, he returns basically to where he started, like quite literally like where he was born. He was born in the beginning of world war two in like the early 1940s. And not that he lived and had memories of what it was like to live in Japan during world war two, but he certainly lived informative years in the aftermath of what happened in world war two and the sort of demilitarization of Japan after, after how world war two ended. And the, he of course has a 
pretty outspoken pacifist himself and the idea of a demilitarized demilitarized japan he has i would imagine a lot of a lot in common with the ideology of that but to then have a sort of creative side of him that wants to almost push back against that and say i agree we shouldn't have a military necessarily or i agree we shouldn't be fighting in wars but what we accomplished from a design and uh, architectural standpoint with these planes is something that we as Japanese citizens should be proud of. Like, I find it really interesting to him to return to that, uh, return to his childhood almost, basically, with this final movie. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that The Boy and the Heron is also set during World War II. Um, obviously, incredibly different film, but it's something that completely occupies his headspace still. And it occupies a lot of headspace for Japanese citizens, too. I think this notion of the like socio-political, geopolitical history of the country um, like World War II sort of is a specter, I think, in many of the involved countries' pasts. I think that's true for Japan as well. And and I think that it's something that Miyazaki clearly weighs on his mind, not only because his father worked and his father and his uncle ran a company designing and building airplane parts, um, which obviously went to the war machine, like the Japanese war machine, but also his demonstrated love for aviation and and planes over the entirety of his career and then to then come back and make this film about probably the man who inspired that line um you know the the design of japanese warplanes the most in jiro horikoshi so it's pretty pretty entangled stuff i think is what it is is really how i'd put it is that he has a lot of feelings and emotions i think i think they come off in the film as, as complicated feelings and emotions about these things and the fact that he sort of is able to lay them all on the table maybe not give you the viewer the most satisfying answer to some of those questions but in living his truth so to speak he maybe gives the most satisfying answer of all and i just think that's one of the elements of the film that isn't even about the performances and the characterization that speaks most deeply Yes, ab absolutely. Um, you know, he's been engaging with sort of the historical context around Japan in a lot of the movies. And, you know, we've we've talked about maybe in, in some other movies, it's a little bit harder to understand just, you know, exactly the depth of what he's doing because we're not Japanese. But here yeah. it feels like it's a little more straightforward because, um, you know, we certainly have all grown up learning about World War II and we understand sort of the, the complicated um, feelings that probably every nation involved in the war to some extent, you know, have about the necessity of it. And, you know, the, the, what the, the, the duty of the, their country to participate in these sorts of things. So um, it's interesting to see him wrestling with that again, in the context of someone who is creating art, if you will, um, planes and, and, obviously in the case of this movie, but um, you can extend that beyond just that context. Um, let's move on and talk about the character of Jiro um, because he is obviously the center of this movie. Um, as mentioned, you know, we start out with him as a young boy, but he, um, he you know, we qu he quickly grows up. We see him briefly as a young boy, just sort of um, with that dream of being a pilot, but that dream is dashed because of his visual impairment and, um, Instead, he pursues this career as an engineer, and it sort of becomes a series of vignettes, if you will, in his life um, for the rest of the movie. But um, he's a complex character. You know, like we said, he's, he's obviously grappling with these ideas of creating, but creating in a, in a context that he knows is going to be used for nefarious purposes. Um, but he's, he's a very driven individual for most of the movie. Um, and then, of course, we introduce the aspect of Naoko and sort of the doomed romance, if you will, that they have, because we know that Naoko is very sick and is not going to be alive for a long time. There's a lot going on with this character. Um, of course, you know, it's hard not to see him as a Miyazaki stand in to some extent, but, you know, after all the stuff we talked about. Jay, what did you think about Jiro um, and, you know, what's going on with that character and how he stacks up maybe to some of the other prot protagonists that we've seen throughout Miyazaki's 
Ubra. I mean, maybe this is a sad thing to say, but I don't feel like I actually relate to him in the same way. But may, I think that's because I i don't think I've ever been so singularly driven to create something before. I don't think most of us have, but like, what do I know? Um, that doesn't mean that I don't find it, you know, in, in, in a way admirable. Again, I think I talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, I'm... I think to some extent he's turning a blind eye to anything that might upset some of the notions that he has, is trying to live out again. Like my marriage is beautiful. These planes will be beautiful. Like both things that are, you know, no doubt, like for very different reasons, of course, like headed towards, uh, I don't want to say disaster per se, but like, you know, headed towards something that's going to like upset these ideas he has about, you know, his marriage and his plane or his planes. Um, but again, like it, it, it's so interesting because I think as I was watching the movie and, you know, I'm watching, uh, you know, him like kind of power through his wife being sick. And again, just like, you know, even, you know, you talked about, we very briefly saw him as a kid, but I think that scene to me is like super important because, you know, it shows, it's a very quick glimpse into like, hey, fighting is never the answer, right? Like he wanted to stand up for that kid. He comes home, like, you know, I feel like the standard answer is like, what a hero for like standing up, you know, for someone else. And uh, the answer is nope, like violence is never okay. And, you know, seeing that kid just like put all this out of his mind, you know, I think for for a bit was frustrating and it felt very just like, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to see you grapple with this to some extent. And again, like I'm not, I think we, we see him do that to some extent, again, maybe not to the most satisfying conclusion, like Scott Shelton said, but I think that the, you know, the amount we get, whether it's his conversations and dreams, his like flash forwards, you know, realizing what will happen with his planes. And then also, you know, that, that moment where he's, his attention is just kind of diverted during the test flight you know, by a, a gust of wind, you know, whether that's him, like, maybe realizing that his wife is gone or other just like, this is my, you know, I am death, I am, you know, reckoning moment, like it, you know, I, I think those glimpses are really what ultimately, like, endeared me to this film was like, you know, it, it it's cool, you know, to put it simply to like, see someone so singularly driven and passionate and brilliant, you know, I think, uh, what is it? He's an insensitive chucklehead without a home uh, is how Kurokawa described him. And I thought that was really funny, but you know, it, it really is just those, those brief moments where we see him like, you know, thinking about this, talking to Caproni in the dream, like, would you want to live in a world with or without pyramids? Like that I think really endear me to this story and to him. Scott, do you feel similarly? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Jiro is it's it feels almost like academic to say it, but the movie almost rides on your investment and his mindset and his journey through the film. And because that journey involves two, I would say, converging paths of his desire to create and progress Japanese's uh, or Japan's military, or not, I shouldn't say military, I should say air, just aeronautical design airplanes that, um, and that of his eventual budding relationship with Naoko. I find it to be extremely compelling when he realizes that the, that inspiration can come from many places that you can have many loves in your life, right. To inspire you. And when he, is trying to balance these things. I think maybe it was Jay earlier who called it. There's almost a naivete about his, um, or almost blinkeredness about his uh, pushing forward and trying to create the way he's creating while his wife struggles to cling to life almost. But and and in, in some romance, I think Jay, this is what you were just alluding to. Is like that is that can be really unsatisfying to see this person be divided in that way. But I find it just like so enriching and so deeply moving when you, you really feel like a creator is painting um, 
not inherently an unflattering picture of themselves, but a picture that that just feels true that I they're putting this on the page, not as a value judgment one way or the other, but to say this is kind of who I am, too. And the because you're so invested in Jiro and and me as a viewer, and I can't separate these things, but like me as a viewer connecting Jiro to Hayao Miyazaki, that I find some of some of the most effective movies by auteurs, writer directors who who make their own films, sort of almost you know soup to nuts, are the kind of, when you when you start to unearth a project like this where they are really revealing something about themselves to you, and when you've invested so much into their creations yourself and and trying to relate to them and understand them and and dissect them they become all the more gratifying and bec- and Jiro gets this boost when I'm watching it because not only does he feel like such a well-realized character you know whether he's a real person or not I mean there's I'm sure there's plenty of creative liberties taken don't get me wrong I don't think this is a a really you know true true to life biopic necessarily but the fact that it's able to feel true to life and maybe most importantly you're able to really feel like you are learning something intimately important about the person whose creation you are consuming just feels like this is a perfect character for that reason because of his imperfections and his frustration and his frustration like how he frustrates me as a viewer i gain some really powerful insight into one of the creators that maybe i revere the most in this medium and the fact that i can see those same unflattering traits in myself maybe from a different angle or a different perspective about you know i, I like jay don't really feel like i am a, a big creative force that wants to create something from you know thin air like jiro or like hayao miyazaki do but i certainly feel this notion of like passion in certain things that i do and i can feel those things absorb me sometimes and the fact that we can all sort of come to this movie and see those things in other people and ourselves and say that that's a really interesting thing about us that and not necessarily assign a value judgment to that and learn something about yourself in that way what you do with that i think is you know maybe how the film affects you longer term but i find that uh is what makes jiro such an an effective character and yeah i mean that's not even to mention the performance of the arc but the arc is a is obviously a huge part of that and yeah that that naivete is so important to the character and i think that it's written well and it's performed well by joseph gordon levitt in the english dub I, I didn't i think maybe we've touched very briefly in an earlier episode on the relationship between miyazaki and his family i think his son specifically maybe has come up at some point and i don't i don't and i definitely didn't remember it while watching this but i find I feel like my heart is like breaking in a whole nother way, you know, hearing that he was like away from his family, especially in the early years. And maybe he has a difficult relationship with his son and maybe in part, like, again, we'll never know. Like I'm, you know, we'll never know what was going on there, but it doesn't, from what you're saying, and I'm definitely going to go try to find out about this after. It doesn't seem like a stretch to say it could at least be in part contributed to by, how into his work Miyazaki was and like seeing, you know, the end where you're all, you know, you're ultimately like, you know, was it a bad thing that I created this thing? And it, you know, the answer is like, you know, there, there is no real answer, but it does feel like there is some, you know, I think the answer is, be, is actually like pretty unabashedly. No, it is not a bad yeah, thing. I think that's like, where the film you know, comes your, down. Your, your dream. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you, your dream was realized like, that is a beautiful thing. Um, I mean, the planes are beautiful. I mean, they say that so many times in the film. Yeah, but just to hear, to put a bow on this and what you're saying about, you know, him telling a story about himself, like the idea, I'm like imagining this from the perspective of someone who maybe has been frustrated by him, you know, and, you know, it's it's crushing almost to see, you know, see him say like, you know, this is me, I had to do this. But it's also like, it's just, I find it so moving um yeah i mean talk about this is adding like a whole another layer to it like as we sit here on this call yeah i mean i i use the word bittersweet because i mean i i certainly agree that yes the i think the ultimate takeaway is yes it was worth it to build 
these planes. But also there's still that aspect of, you know, again, the, the going back to that quote, the wind is rising, so we must live. We have to find a way to live, right? And as creators, is this simply what we need to tell ourselves in order to keep going forward, right? That what we created was beautiful in spite of everything else that, you know, is is uh, going to happen with these planes in spite of all the destruction that they may cause. You know, yes, there may be some truth in that, but um, is that also just our way of sort of forcing ourselves to keep going in this life? Um, you know, knowing that what what you poured so much time into is not going to be used for the reason that you want it to be. And so I think there still is that twinge of bitterness to the realization that, you know, he has at the end to this final conversation as beautiful as it is. And as much as obviously I think all of us would affirm the, the you know, sincere value of the art that is being created in any form. Yeah. Uh, f fun fact, while we're talking about planes and Goro Miyazaki, Goro Miyazaki has made three films uh, for Studio Ghibli. Two of those three films are the worst reviewed films ever in Studio Ghibli's history. Like, really not well received. One of them is, is uh, I have not watched it, but apparently very good. Uh, that, that one happened to be the one written by Hayao Miyazaki, so that might have helped. But one fun thing just about Ghibli is, before we move on to this, just because I was looking at it, because I thought this was true and I wanted to double check, we can finally talk about the actual reason why the studio was named Ghibli and what that actually means. It's the Italianized word from the Libyan Arabic name for the hot desert wind, which obviously is related to aviation. But it was also the Italian nickname for the Caproni CA-309 aircraft. And so another little fun full circle moment that the name of the studio is named after the airplane that Caproni, the Italian plane inventor in the film made so kind of is that kind of calling your shot from like for like 30 years before this is like we... this is like nolan having a batman logo in on, on his, his apartment door, door or whatever and yeah, yeah it's like yeah. i was always gonna end up here yeah pretty crazy yeah but i think just to you know s s sum it up i think um I think naivete is a good way to think about it, not just in his relationship, but again, he's still trying as he's working, like, hey, is there some way that I can do this and also avoid, you know, the dark side of this, right? Because there's that there's that scene or whatever where the, he's like talking to a bunch of them about the design of the plane. And he's like, well, we could just take the guns off of it. And they just all laugh at him. But it's like, well, you know, well, you sincerely, that, that is what he wants. Yeah. And it is in theory possible. But um so there is, you know, some sort of, again, he's, I think he's, part of it is him just kind of telling himself what he needs to tell himself to, to keep going. And, and when they go to, when he goes to Germany and sees Junkers plane, his big plane, and it, they're talking about how, oh, it's, it's such a travesty that they'll be dropping bombs from here instead of putting, you know, people in these planes. It's like, kind of, it's, you know, yeah, it, it is. Passenger. It, it's not that the film is so inherently like pacifist or anti-war. It is those things, but it's more just the lament of how these creations are used outside of the will and the whims of those who are responsible for bringing them into the world. And obviously the, that, that manifests itself in this movie as, as being anti-war and Miyazaki himself seems that, you know, seems pretty strongly anti-war, but it really feels like it's, it's about more than that, right? It's not just, it's, it's also about how people interpret and use his movies, which is like obviously a difficult conversation to have because we have no idea what Miyazaki's intentions are in a lot of those things. But I think that's such a huge part of The Boy and the Heron as well. Not that this is a theme that overlaps, but it's like one of these things where I, I'll be curious to talk about this when we talk about that movie. But it feels like one of those things that's on Miyazaki's mind is that like more so maybe than any other movie that I've made you know, I made this movie for a very specific reason and no one else is going to understand that. And that's out of my control. So I think, I think that's like such an interesting idea that obviously he, I don't want to say struggles with, but it's like a, a thing that he has to confront in his own creative process. I do want to talk a little bit more, you know, we've spent maybe less time on it than the other aspects of the movie, but the love story, right? Sure. What happens in the second half of the movie when he reconnects with Naoko 
Uh, and again, I, I mentioned up front, I think, you know, the one of the themes that's been present in a lot of Miyazaki's work and that's present here is like this idea of simple acts of compassion and kindness can go a long way. And I think you see that in their storyline because um, they reconnect and she is drawn to him because of this kind thing that he did many years before when they were children, when he helped her maid who was injured during the earthquake. Um, and so, you know, again, just another sort of full circle moment, if you will, uh, uh, for the storytelling that Miyazaki has done. But they reconnect. He learns very quickly that she's very sick. Um, there's just the the very, very cute scene of them throwing the paper airplane back and forth to each other, which is just a delightful scene. But they have this sort of whirlwind romance there at the resort. Um, and then, you know, the the rest of her involvement in the movie is kind of bedridden, you know, whispering sweet words to him, if you will, before he goes off to do his job, right? And then ultimately passing away. What do you think about uh, what this particular storyline adds to the overall commentary of the movie and, you know, the ideas about creating in difficult circumstances? Scott? Yeah, I think it's it's honestly what makes the creative process in the film all the more powerful is the sacrifice that is sort of inherent in the love story that's being told. It's one of those things where it's the film the film doesn't really dwell heavily on this idea, but because it because it almost it it coasts over, sorry for the pun, these these elements, but like the fact that he's had another plane fail, another design failed, even though everyone at Mitsubishi believes that he is the person to design the plane, he will crack the nut. Like he will get to where it needs to be, but he still can't quite get there. And that sort of level of dejection that he must be feeling to then go, uh, you know, be sent for the summer or whatever months it is to this, this almost this sort of pastoral retreat, this resort like place almost. And I think it's like Kasakawa or Karuzawa or something like that. I can't quite remember the name of it, but it is um, like a hotel resort type place in, you know, in the countryside. And there he finds his renewed inspiration and his passion again, not because he's getting well rested, but because he falls in love. And the air, the paper airplane scene is, of course, you know, beautiful. It's a standout and the sort of the whimsy that is involved both with the way the scene is shot and framed in the animation, but also with the Hasaishi score, Scott, that you've you've talked about already, I think really contributes so much to quickly developing their relationship in a very compact amount of time. There's just something about the journey that that scene takes you on in this very, you know, microcosmic environment that works super effectively. And when you combine that with then this devastating story of the tuberculosis rupturing one of her, one of Nahoko's lungs and that causing her to go to the sanatorium. But in that process, they, they realizing their love for each other and their limited amount of time together, uh, bringing them together in that way. I think it, it all feels so believable. I feel like so, so many times, so many stories, make this sort of element of the plot feel very rushed for me that feel unnatural but something about the way this story is positioned and framed i don't really feel that almost that drag on the story very much at all and i and i get it i understand why and then just the scene the one that gets me the most maybe i, I don't know if it's it's probably not my favorite scene in the in the whole movie but the scene where he comes home and he has his table and he's just come home to work to sit next to her right even though he's going to work the entire night and he scooches the tape, like he, he moves the table over and sits next to her and holds her hand while he tries to maneuver his slide rule and his pencil. I just, there's something so plain about that scene, but just so, I mean, deeply, deeply emotionally devastating when you think about these are some of the last days that they have together and it makes you appreciate. And I think gives you get, at least it gives, it makes me feel like, I gained some sort of perspective on how important it is to to live, right? 
what she knows and we we keep going back to this the quote that's sort of the core of the film that the the wind rises we must try to live and this is jiro and naoko trying to live she is going to die and she's going to die whether she spends time with jiro or whether she spends time at the sanatorium and this is what she this is what she can do to live at you know when the wind is rising for her and i just find that just like so deeply affecting for me personally as um, like thinking about that and thinking about and making sure that you're not wasting your time, right? Like you're not, whatever that may look like for you, whether you're someone like Jiro, whether you're someone like Naoko, or you're someone completely different from those people. Like you have to, you have to figure out what it is for me, for you to try to live while you can. And that's like one of the core parts of the romance. It's the core of the movie and it's just very deeply emotional. Jay, anything to add there? Couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I think in a, you know, just to quote something else Scott said about this through line earlier, like I think it also just does a really wonderful job showing you that you can love more than one thing, that you can find inspiration and beauty in more than one thing. Again, it's one of those things that as it's happening, I'm finding it very frustrating. But then you have these, you know, smaller moments. Again, I you know, you describe him coming home and like maneuvering the slide rule with one hand, you know, I wish I could leave my hand with you for the test flight. Like, I, you know, just these, these, these moments where you're like, okay, yes. Like, you know, they, they are living like, this is frustrating, but like, like you said, like, she's going to die, you know, like, and that's, I think something that again, as a, as a first time watcher, I'm really just struggling with. Cause I'm like, your wife is dying. And like, this is how you're choosing to spend your time. Um, there's a naivete yeah. about it in a fresh in a frustratedness about it, but it, you're just like, it also just feels simultaneously undeniable. Like, yeah. I, I got, it's just so, and I'm like, I'm getting emotional talking about it. Like, it's crazy how, how deeply affecting I find this whole, this whole element of the movie. No, I agree. And I, I mean, you know, in, in, in the way you say, you know, it, it gives you another, it shows that you can find this love in more than one thing. I, I think I, I think I've said this already, like, you know, it, it parallels again that, you know, I'm just going to tune out anything that does not fit my idea of what this beautiful thing is. Like, I'm going to make this plane. I'm not going to think about how it's going to be used. I'm going to, you know, spend time with my wife. I'm not going to think about the fact that she's like, you know, struggling to breathe or like, you know, he's even like him smoking in front of her. I think maybe it was the one moment where I was like, dude, like, come on, <laughs> like, come on. And I know, you know, she was just like, it's fine. Like, I get that she said it's okay, but like, this is clearly someone who's willing to sacrifice like everything for you. Like, for what it's worth, when she has a ruptured lung with tuberculosis, I'm not sure some secondhand smoke is going to do too much more damage to her. Oh, I, I know, but I was, I mean, that, that, that <laughs> no, was the I one scene you. where I, I roll you. my eyes a little bit. Yeah, I was like, yeah. come on, man. Like, but also, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, it, again, it's, it, it just gives you a whole nother lens, right? Of, you know, his, just his like singular focus on, you know, finding or creating the beauty in something. And, you know, again, gives me that frustration until we have that payoff. You know, I, like, I, I, I don't know, like, if this is actually what it's meant to be, or if you're just, you know, if they're, it's open to interpretation or whatever, but I firmly believe that, you know, during the test flight, when he feels that gust of wind, like she has passed and he can sense it. Like that, yes. that's, that, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she's basically like definitely calling yeah. him to her at the end. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want, I want to set aside a minute or two to talk about that scene because I also feel like, you know, there, there's a couple different ways to read that, but go ahead, go ahead. Talk, talk about well, it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start by asking a simple question. Like, is he contemplating suicide at the end? No, I, I didn't get that. I, I don't know if I got that per se, but this idea that, you know, he's in this dream, he's thinking about what has happened and, you know, his his like now deceased wife is coming to him being like you must live or like i i can't remember if she says you must live exactly but like she's basically telling him to like go on living right like i don't i might, I might be reaching here a little bit but i did have this like weird sense of like you know is is there any part of him that is just like i'm done now like not like literally like i'm going to kill myself but like i'm done with you know his wife is gone the plane is done with the plane is done like you know what what else is there almost? And yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think it probably makes it a little less dark if you don't add that spin to it, but it was something that crossed my mind briefly while watching it. Um, 
did ultimately find it moving, you know, that, you know, he has, again, this scene with her in his like dream where she's just telling him to continue on and whatnot. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I, again, I think there is complexity there, but I just think that would, that would be, you know, uh, uh, maybe a bridge too far, especially when you factor in like the soaring score and everything. Like I, I, I just can't see that being the takeaway. I think, I mean, I think the, what Scott, how describe Scott described the film at the beginning is how you're supposed to feel at the end because there is this yeah. element of the soaring score, but there's also obviously this deep feeling of loss and it's yes. bitter. I mean, bittersweet is the way it is. But I think what, how I read it is, is that he is walking in to a post-war future, right? Like, I kind of read that moment that it's sort of almost fast forwarding. Like it is sort of changing and gear shifting from, I don't honestly know what time in the war it is, you know, sometime in the early 1940s where these planes are being developed, that he's doing this test run and whatnot. And it's almost sort of fast forwarding to the end of the war, right? They're talking about how like the planes flew and they were beautiful, but the war is over and now we must live. And I think it's almost him walking into this future with Caproni, who also was someone who had, who was forced essentially to make planes that were used as machines of war in World War One, And he had to walk into a similar future and maybe to varying levels of success and satisfaction, maybe partly because the funding that he almost surely received, like Horikoshi did to build these airplanes, you know, without a function, it's harder to receive that. It, it almost like this complex nature of it. It will be harder to create now than it was before but we must live we must try to live something interesting as i'm just diving into this this ending and i think you know you've you've perhaps sold me especially you know mentioning how the score kind of and i guess like you know the the through line the quote like does all seem to suggest we were going to end up at this point of you know we must go on we must create uh apparently in the original in miyazaki's original story um like in his first ending he Jiro actually died um, before it was ultimately changed to him continuing on. And then I think, you know, giving that final meaning of the wind rises. So I'm not, I, I don't know. Like there's nothing really to take away from that, but I guess I'm. Well, I think it's the complicated nature of that. Miyazaki's like not really perfect, like not trying to perfectly adapt the life of this man. He's obviously using a lot of his inspiration, but the name of the movie is based on another you know, semi-autobiographical novel written by Tatsuo Hori, who, for at least to my understanding, like a lot of the familial details and a lot of like the relationships that Jiro is depicted as having, like actually are more based on Tatsuo Hori's life, not Jiro's. So it's this sort of weird amalgamation of different people's truths, right? To create the truth that Miyazaki sees in himself, I'd imagine. At least that's the way that I've I've thought about it. And at the end, like, I don't know, like, I've just, I've never gotten, not that we're still really talking about suicide and, and, and whatnot, but like the notion that he's not going to continue to live. And, you know, even though he said he's not making movies anymore, he's made another movie a decade later. And he's, our, you know, according to, you know, Toshio Suzuki, he's like back in the office every day thinking about his next movie, like you know the wind That's is the rising. way he knows how to live well, i was gonna say and, that th this should have been the ultimate flag that he wasn't done like if the whole movie sure. really is you know we must go on we must create I, like i do <laughs> wish i do wish that, that i could have watched because i watched this movie much later but when we already knew about the boy in the hair i wish that i could have watched this movie in theaters like knowing or thinking Believing. at the time that it was going to be his last movie, because I think it would have been even more overwhelming that ending. Sure. But I think that's fair. Having talked sorry, Scott, about would you like, ending... would you like to say a word in this podcast? Scott, I'm sorry. We're sorry for taking up so much airspace here. <laughs> no, look, you guys have said, said everything. I mean, I, I'm in full agreement with you. I, I love this movie and you know, I think as I said, do you, do you have any other thoughts about the relationship? Though? I know we got way off topic there at the end, but that, that is something that I know you wanted to talk about too. So, well, again, I, I think you guys have, have covered a lot of it. You know, I like what what Jay said about contextualizing it as in the same way that he's making planes, knowing that they're going to be used for destructive outcomes. He's entering this romance, knowing that there's going to be a tragic outcome that happens. Right. And and there is one. But the beauty is not in, you know, the end it is in, you know, 
it's in the act of doing you will yeah Yeah. it's in the act of doing it's in entering the romance it's in loving another person i think that's what that's all about and you know it's very moving especially when you think about you know maybe miyazaki reflecting upon his own relationship and things that he wishes he may have done or, or not done I mean, Jiro yeah, doesn't but... even flinch when he learns about like her being sick, right? Like he's just like, nope, yeah. we're we're in. I'm all in. I'm going. Like, yeah, literally doesn't even flinch. It's and as soon as he gets that call about her lung hemorrhage, he's like, I'm out here. I'm going home. Um, so he has he, he does have his priorities to some extent in the right place. Yeah, does so does and Martin Short being an absolute boss and a homie. Protecting him from the secret police, giving yeah. him a place to live, marrying him—what a guy! I remember I watched this. I think the first times I watched this movie, I had no idea it was Martin Short. And then this time, I was like, "Is that Martin Short?" And I'm like, "This is Martin Short." <laughs> like, what? It doesn't even. I mean, to me, it doesn't sound remotely like him. It's, it's very He's random. Doing a crazy voice. Yeah, the castings I feel like have gotten more random as we've gotten deeper into these movies. But, um, but yeah. All right, I think with that, we can move in to talk about our favorite scene or moment from The Wind Rises, Jay. I think I brought it up twice. It's, it's no surprise. It is the test flight. You know, he's he's at this, you know, the crowning achievement of his professional life, at least. And he can't even bring himself to look at the sky because, you know, his mind is elsewhere. Um, you know, it's like and again like scott you always bring up the hisaishi score like i and scott sheldon you always bring it up scott harvey i think you know you mentioned this might be one of your favorites if not favorite like this is one that's definitely going to stick with me it just you know absolutely carved my heart yeah scott yeah for it i talked about the one where he's at home working and and spending time with naoko before she you know you know before this test flight and before um she passes away and that's a, that's a very moving scene for me and it's almost in its simplicity and it's very and it's almost sheer basicness but i think my favorite to sort of take get away from like the sort of raw emotional sort of resonance and get into a scene that i just i think is always the moment when i'm watching this film where i really feel it again like oh this is this is this is the movie is when he, he's in that shared dream for the first time with caproni and this man is showing him the planes and for the, the very first time the film quotes you know the the french is it, i think it's a i think it's a poem where the quote is you know the wind rises we must try to live and i think that's the thing that gets with me and i, and I know it gets sort of shortened and it gets and it gets manipulated and, and, and phrased in different ways to, to, to fit the specific conversation that's happening but this very more this time that it's more directly quoted in this sort of idyllic almost like European countryside of, uh, or you can presume Italy if it's Caproni's shared dream, but this notion of this countryside where planes, there's this like pure creativity in planes and all the people you love are there, right? The whole town that Caproni is from is there on the plane with him and celebrating his achievements with him. And this sort of like raw positive emotion that is clearly is what inspires him to make planes, right? And seeing that and then, and then hearing that quote for the first time, that's every time I watch this movie, that is the moment where... I think the try is so important, right? We must try to live. And I think that is the time where it, it always hits me and sort of, I feel that sort of churning in my stomach that, you know, this film is, you know, one of my favorites. It's already been referenced, but I'll just say that I love the paper airplane scene again, such a, a beautiful, again, place where like his work in a, in a really, you know, primitive form, if you will, is coalescing with his romance with the love that he feels for Naoko and, you know, him trying to get the precision right on this airplane so that it, you know, flies smoothly. Um, it's, you know, it's a perfect little mini scene that, that you know, sums up what this movie is, is about. Uh, favorite? No, we just did that. Your score for The Wind I got Rises. more. I'm happy to talk about more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we, we can keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Jay out of 10. Fuck it. It's a 10. Like let's let it ride. I think I, yeah. think I was, I think I walked out of it being like, it's very, very close. I, there's no need to split hairs. It's, it's a 10. Look, I already called it one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a 10. 
It's a 9.5. Uh, no, it's a, it's a 10. It's a 10. It's a triple 10 here. Uh, I think the, the second time we've one. done it on the count. Third one. Third yeah. one, right? We did third it for Kiki, steered it away, and then Wind Rises. Well, maybe a hint as to where our rankings are going. We'll, of course, be revealing <laughs> that in the uh, retrospective episode, which will be our next episode. Uh, but uh, thank you for listening to all of our reviews here of the Miyazaki movies on the countdown. We hope you've gotten something out of them. Maybe watch one of these movies or multiple of them for the first time and had a similar experience that we have. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the series. If you have, and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. But even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. If we're in your Spotify wrapped, thank you. Uh, we're probably not, but thank you anyway. If, you, if um, we're in your Spotify wrapped, you're probably in the top 1% of our viewers. You probably are, yeah. <laughs> uh, but also check out Some Like It, Scott, uh, for weekly movie reviews. And that is where our Boy in the Heron review will be up uh, very shortly. And uh, we hope you'll be back for our final episode of, of The Countdown, which will be that retrospective episode. Uh, until then, though, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.